Genesis 37 today, so uh, please go ahead and turn there as we uh, get ready to start. We'll begin with a word of prayer first, though. Let's pray. Lord, we are grateful for another opportunity to come here and to just see the story of Genesis continue to advance forward. I pray, Lord, that uh, you would convict us this morning, perhaps of sin, that you would reveal yourself to us, that we would appreciate uh, your majesty as we see just maybe on a, on a larger scale the story of the scriptures here. Please quiet our hearts, help us to be attentive, um, to be humble, and to listen to your word and your spirit as it uses it in our lives. Thank you for Christ. Thank you that he is anticipated in these early pages here. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. All right, this is our second to last week in the book of Genesis here. Um, kind of interesting. We've read most of the book, skipped a couple of chapters here and there. And I realize that a lot of these stories are familiar territory in some senses. Uh, we've heard a lot about Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob even prior to this. But I really hope that you are appreciating the larger narrative that is being woven here as we intentionally pause and look at how Jesus is being anticipated even in the lives of these patriarchs as we are seeing this promise reiterated over and over and over again that all of the nations are going to be blessed through one of Abraham's offspring. And that should be like a neon sign for us. Ding, 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 ding. This is anticipating Jesus Christ. I hope that you're seeing that. Today is no different in the sense of being a familiar story. If you did the reading this week, you know already that we're going to be talking about Joseph. And I hope that this week and next, uh, you take a familiar story and perhaps see it in a new light and you think to yourself, as I did this week, Joseph is an incredible character. His life has a lot of uh, things that are worth emulating in our own lives. I hope that I can draw that out today and that you leave thinking, man, I want to be a little bit more like Joseph. I want to acknowledge God's work in my life like Joseph did. I want to be fighting temptation like Joseph did. His example to us is truly incredible. So we're here in Genesis 37, the beginning of Joseph's story. And right out of the gate, we're told something about Joseph, that he was Jacob's favorite Son, And of course, one of the distinguishing things that identified Jacob or Joseph as the favorite was a piece of clothing, his coat of many colors, as is commonly called. Now, perhaps you have a footnote in your Bible that says that perhaps this was a, uh, a coat with long sleeves. It could have been a coat of many colors. I believe the NIV says that it was a ornate garment. But the point is pretty clear. Jacob has a favorite son. I'm sure, you know, there's a lot of kids that accuse their parents of having a favorite, as I once accused my parents that they had a favorite, and they would gladly assure me that, yes, it was my brother that was their favorite child. <laughs> and they were only joking, of course. But in Jacob's case, it was pretty obvious he had a favorite son. Only one of his kids had a coat like this. And it seems unfortunate that this is actually a generational problem. If you remember, Jacob was actually the favorite son of his mother. And Esau was the favorite son of his dad. And when the time came for the birthright to be distributed, there was some conflict. 
Jacob's mom sees that he's about to be overlooked and she intervenes and she puts together this manipulative and deceptive plan to make sure that her favorite child inherits the blessing here. And unfortunately, Jacob is just perpetuating this by choosing a favorite child himself. Now, I'm not a parent, but I think we can see the events that are about to happen and at least have like a warning to us that it is dangerous when we show favoritism to kids. And we see just like the ugly fruit of what results from showing uh, partial, uh, I don't know, attitudes or treatment towards one individual in particular. Bad things just happen as a result of this. It's not only that Joseph is the favorite, though. Chapter 37 records a couple of dreams that he has that also kind of contribute to some of this animosity that takes place here. He has two separate dreams. The first, uh, there are, I think, like a sheaf of wheat or some sort of grain or something that all bows down before Joseph's sheaf. In the second dream, the sun, moon, and stars all bow down again before Joseph. And you don't need an interpreter for this dream. At least his brothers didn't. They all understood what's going on here, that uh, Joseph is going to be superior that he is going to be exalted over his brothers. And that brings us to our first question this morning. Oh, I forgot to mention this. We're going to do something a little bit uh, out of the ordinary and considering maybe the end of the story of Joseph before we even get to the beginning here. And that is Joseph's conclusory statement about all of the events that have happened in his life. He's speaking to his brothers here. And he says this, As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. Joseph's life, from a casual perspective, seems like a series of unfortunate events. Over and over and over again, bad things happen to him in his life. But Joseph has this mindset, this perspective, that is able to say to his brothers, you guys planned evil against me, but God was doing something here. He was working out good. So I apologize for getting a little out of order here. That's kind of how the book ends. Now we're back at the beginning here. Joseph is the favorite brother. He has all of these dreams. What words are used in verses 4, 5, 8, and 11 to describe how the other brothers felt about Joseph? Diane? They hated him. They hated him. Any other words you encountered in there that, yeah, Claire? They were jealous of him. Yeah, I've got these verses listed in my notes. Uh, In verse 4, they hated him and could not speak peaceably to him. Verse 5, they hated him even more. Same thing in verse 8. And then in verse 11, it says his brothers were jealous of him. And I asked you, what action resulted from those emotions of hatred and jealousy? What was one of the outcomes of this uh, feelings towards him? Yeah, Craig. Maybe he didn't do himself any favors there by sharing those dreams, certainly. And what was a, even a consequence of that, Shane? They conspired to kill him. You remember one day the ten brothers are in another part of the, part of the land shepherding their sheep. They see Joseph coming from a distance and they think to themselves, we've got to take this guy out. And Reuben actually kind of stands up and says, well, let's not kill him. Let's throw him into a pit for a minute. And then they actually end up selling him into slavery. This is really not, uh, you know, 
a pleasant time for Joseph. The brothers like take his coat after they take it off of him, dip it in blood, and come back to Jacob and say, a wild animal got to him. I said this last week, but deception really seems to follow Jacob wherever he goes. At the beginning of his life, he's a deceiver himself. Here towards the end, people are deceiving him. And as a bit of a reflective question, I asked you to just take a moment to prayerfully consider if you've been harboring hatred or jealousy towards someone else and to repent of it. Now, hopefully none of us will act out in this extreme way where we hate someone and we conspire to kill them. But the fruit of hatred or jealousy in our life can still be pretty ugly. I thought of just a couple of manifestations of this. Sometimes people that we hate, we might slander. We might say things in just a sentence that could ruin a reputation or someone else's perspective of them. Sometimes our jealousy leads us to exclude other people. We don't include them in conversations. We don't extend invites to people because we're jealous of them. It's an ugly thing. And if you remember from a couple of weeks ago, I was teaching in the book of James, and we were reminded that this uh, attitude of jealousy, James says, is not just kind of bad. It is fundamentally demonic. Galatians 5 says it is a work of the flesh. Proverbs says that hatred stirs up strife. If you look at the book of 1 John, we're told that a person who says they love God but hates their brother is a liar. We're seeing this kind of played out in Joseph's life here. And so I don't think that you need to be convinced that jealousy and hatred are sinful attitudes. What I'm concerned about, though, is maybe we're not that good at spotting them in our own lives. They're kind of subtle. We don't really realize that they exist. Maybe we are a little too casual in our treatment of these things. We just kind of let that bitterness and hatred fester without really dealing with it. And we need to nip that in the bud and repent of those kind of feelings when we begin to feel them well up in our hearts and say, Lord, give me the love of Christ here. Help me to truly love people, no matter how they treat me, no matter my perspective of them and what I might think they're doing to me. Help me to love. Father, please let me have the eyes of Christ that can see people. Help me to have that love that is kind and humble and patient, that thinks the best of others and is not easily irritated with them. Hatred and jealousy are a terrible thing, as the story of Joseph demonstrates to us. We have one more question here from Genesis 37. According to verse 26, whose idea is it to sell Joseph into slavery? There's one brother that's at fault here. Yeah, Dave. Judah. Judah. Yes, and that is going to be important as the story progresses. Reuben had the idea to spare his life. Hey, we'll figure it out later. We'll throw him in a pit. But it was Judah who sees the Ishmaelites coming along and says, hey, let's sell our brother. And Pastor John actually kind of alerted me to this. We think that the story is all about Joseph. However, there is a second character arc that is being woven throughout the story of Joseph that follows Judah. And I purposefully skipped chapter 38 this week. You can read it on your own time if you're interested. It does not paint largely a flattering picture of Judah. The whole chapter is about him, and it just kind of leaves a sour taste in your mouth. Like, really? This is Judah? This is what he's like? Again, check it out in your own time. But somewhere in the process between now and the end of the story that we'll see today, something happens to Judah, and he becomes a changed individual. We'll comment, though, as we encounter it. Back to the story, we pick up with Joseph in Egypt in chapter 39 here. 
And we're told that he sold into a slavery to a man named Potiphar. Potiphar was Pharaoh's captain of the guard. And you're kind of wondering, hey, how's Joseph doing in slavery here? And the text says that Joseph succeeds at everything he does. He's so successful that he's put in charge of everything in uh, Potiphar's house. And slavery is probably not an ideal situation under any circumstances, but it sure seems like Joseph has things pretty good here. He's so trusted, so successful that Potiphar says, hey, you're in charge of everything here. And then, you know, the story, Potiphar's wife uh, initiates kind of an adulterous relationship with him. He's falsely accused, sent into prison. And again, Pharaoh kind of rises, excuse me, Joseph kind of rises to the top here, even in prison. And and he's put in charge of everything. And you're kind of thinking to yourself, who makes a prisoner in charge of other prisoners? That seems like a disaster waiting to happen. Not with Joseph. He's so successful. He's so trustworthy that he can be entrusted with an incredible position like this. And the author here... In, this, in these chapters, really wants to make one point clear to us, that Joseph's success is not because he was so good at managing other people and so self-disciplined. What was the real reason for Joseph's success? The text just like screams it at us. Yeah, Dave? Because the, the Lord was with him. Yeah, uh, let me just read some excerpts from these verses here. We read, the Lord was with Joseph, the Lord was with him, the Lord caused all that he did to succeed, the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house for Joseph's sakes, Uh, the blessing of the Lord was on all that he had, and these are just some of them. Over and over and over again, the text is saying, Joseph was successful because the Lord was with him. We're going to encounter this idea again in a couple of chapters and deal with it there, but for now, I want us to then look at this interaction that Joseph has with Potiphar's wife. We're told that day after day, she was making these advances on Joseph. Joseph wouldn't listen to her, to lie beside her, to be with her. Her appeals are falling on deaf ears. And we kind of get a little bit of insight into Joseph's thinking about this as to why he refused Potiphar's wife. Certainly, there was a component of it that he said this was someone else's wife, he wasn't going to, you know, dishonor his master in that way, but there was even a more fundamental reason that Joseph was not giving in to temptation here. According to verse 9, what was that reason that he was unwilling to engage in this? Yeah, Cynthia. Yeah, he said, how can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? And that alone kept him from engaging in this sinful activity. There eventually comes a day, maybe the same day here in verse 12, when she like grabs him by the coat and like almost forces him. She says like, lie with me or something. And how does Joseph respond even in that situation? What is his response there? Yeah, Joanne. He runs away. Yeah, he literally like flees the room and gets out of there, leaving his coat behind. His response is really instructive to us, I think. Sometimes I think we are a little too uh, casual with temptation, sometimes we kind of push the boundaries a little bit. We'll just take like, uh, say, uh, in an interaction or experience might have with social media or a movie or some sort of technology. You, you see the direction that this is going. You can anticipate that it's not going to end somewhere well. And yet maybe you linger a little bit and you say, well, I haven't seen anything objectionable yet. And you just kind of flirt with it a little bit. 
And maybe in your heart of hearts, you're thinking, maybe I will see something objectionable, then I'll turn it off, only when I do. To walk that knife's edge is dangerous. Why give any opportunity to our flesh, knowing the path that this is going down? We have to be like Joseph and flee. Uh, the New Testament actually picks up on some of this language and speaks in similar terms. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, Paul says, flee from sexual immorality. Paul tells Timothy in 2 Timothy, flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness. All of us are susceptible to sexual sins. We need to be diligent about putting some distance between ourselves and them, not walking a fine line and saying, oh, I'll just mess around and see where this takes me. Get away from it, like Joseph. So what are some practical ways that you can flee from temptation today? Any ideas on this? Let's get really practical. When you're tempted in any arena, what, what can you do? Yeah, clear. Certainly. Don't neglect the spiritual component to this. Pray to God. Any other thoughts? Bella? Be drastic about it. Yeah, Will, I saw your hand. What are you going to say? Quote some scripture. Any other thoughts? Did you say something, Joanne? Okay, sorry. I thought I heard you. Uh, yeah, I mean, maybe let's get like really practical. Change the channel. Delete an app. Throw your phone in the trash. I don't know. Do something to flee temptation. We cannot mess around with these things. Why would we ever think that it's okay to sin against God like this. And I want to take just a moment to address our young people in particular here. I didn't mention this at the beginning. One of the first things we're told about Joseph is that when he is, when we're first introduced to him in chapter 37, he's 17 years old. The next kind of indicator we get of his age is when he is made second in command of all of Egypt. At that point, he's 30. So somewhere... In his teens or 20s, Joseph is experiencing this temptation with Potiphar's wife. And from a human perspective, Joseph seems to be kind of in a situation in which he can commit the perfect crime. Here's what I mean by that. His parents are in another country. That They're not there every day whispering in his ear, now remember how we raised you. Remember what we taught you about God and personal holiness. Joseph, really, he's not the one making these advances. It's Potiphar's wife. She's the one initiating this. Do you think she's going to tell her husband about some affair that she's had? Doubtful. At the time that this temptation happens, we're told that none of the men of the house are even in there. It's just Joseph and her. This really is the perfect storm of events for him to be able to engage in something and really no one find out about it. Now, sometimes consequences are enough to keep us from sinning, right? How many of you are going to go 100 miles an hour on the highway when there's a police officer right behind you? None of us. You're not going to steal something when this clerk or the security guard at the store is standing right next to you. But here Joseph is with an opportunity to engage in something, and honestly, no one would know. And yet Joseph determines that his relationship with God is so important. He's going to say no to temptation. One of the things that is obvious is that he truly desired to please 
God. God is not just the God of his parents or the God of his upbringing, but now that he's in Egypt, he can do whatever he wants. No, Joseph is demonstrating to us, no matter where he is, no matter what situation he finds himself in, he is going to please the Lord. Again, young people, you guys are in a very critical time of your life. Perhaps you find yourself in a position much like Joseph, where your parents are starting to give you a little bit more of the reins in your life, so to speak. They're not around you 24-7. You have opportunities to participate in things and to do things that they might have no idea what you're engaging in. Please, let me plead with you. Let Joseph be an example to you. Don't be naive in thinking that there are no consequences for your actions. There are always consequences. Even though you think your sin is private, no one knows. You might be hurting your relationship with your future spouse, with your parents. You're going to be looking over your shoulder all the time, wondering, who knows about what I'm engaging in here? No sin is truly private. God is everywhere. And the most important thing that we have to consider is our relationship with the Lord. Even if no one else knows about some of the things we're engaging in, God does. Why would we ever sin and scoff at the work of Christ in saving us from our sins, knowing that we've been delivered? As Pastor John has been talking about this whole, you know, section of Romans 6 here, we have a new master. And to hop right back into sinful activities is just unfathomable. To tell God, thanks for saving me, but I'm going to do my own thing. We should not be thinking like that. We should be thinking, Lord, I don't care what anyone else is doing. I don't care what opportunities I find myself in, where I want to indulge myself. Lord, I want to please you. We have to echo those words of Joseph. How can I do this great wickedness and sin against God here? Joseph is a challenge to me. I really appreciate his commitment to the Lord in a place and, and situation where he could have done whatever he wanted, he chose to please God. In chapter 40, we pick up with the story of Joseph. He's still in prison. At this point, he is really kind of in charge of some of the proceedings of the prison here, and one day the king's cupbearer and the baker come into prison, and you guys know the story. They each have a dream, uh, which Joseph interprets. The cupbearer, he will be restored to his position, but the baker, he's going to lose his head. And uh, sure enough, that comes about, and Joseph just has one plea to the cupbearer. He says, hey, when you get out of here, can you just mention me before Pharaoh? Let him know that I'm in here unjustly. I've been falsely accused. And, of course, the cupbearer gets out, and he forgets about him. And Joseph has to spend another two years in prison. And over the course of time, the end of the two years kind of comes to it. You know, two years pass, Pharaoh has a dream. And no one can interpret his dream. And it's then that the cupbearer realizes, oh, I've made a mistake. I forgot about my man Joseph back in prison. He can interpret your dream, Pharaoh. So Pharaoh pulls him out of prison, and Joseph comes and stands before him. And Pharaoh tells him about this dream, and uh, Joseph says, listen, there's going to be seven years of plenty, followed by seven years of famine. He gives a great, uh, he doesn't just stop there, though. He also um, like, offers a solution 
after this uh, dream is revealed and just tells Pharaoh to start storing up uh, food right now for these uh, lean years that are to come, that is interesting in itself. But I think what is more interesting is how Joseph responds when given an opportunity to respond to these dreams, to interpret them. What are some of the things that Joseph says in these verses here as he's having a chance to interpret the dreams? Yeah, what's he doing here? It's uncanny. Every time he has an opportunity to interpret a dream, he's given credit to God. Uh, let me just quote some of the verses again. In 40 verse 8, Joseph acknowledges that God is at work. He says, do not interpretations belong to God? Implying that the interpretation he's about to give to the cupbearer and the baker are not some fabricated thing that he's come up with. Really, this is God at work here. Joseph in 41 verse 16 is fresh out of prison. He hasn't even heard Joseph's dream yet. And he already says at the get-go, when Pharaoh says, hey, no one else has been able to interpret this, but I know you can, Joseph replies, it's not in me. God will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. And then in 41.25, after hearing the dream, Joseph says to Pharaoh, God has revealed to Pharaoh what he is about to do. And what does Pharaoh acknowledge in 41 verses 38 and 39? Joanne. He acknowledges that Joseph has a divine spirit and that uh, since God's informed him of all that is to have, there is no one so discerning and wise as you are. So he, he feels that uh, Joseph is a very wise choice for... Yeah. You got it. And you said it right at the beginning. Even this pagan, idolatrous ruler of Egypt recognized that only one person that he's consulted has the Spirit of God inside of him, Joseph. And I can't help but think that it is Joseph from the get-go saying, God is going to help me interpret this dream. God has shown you the answer that Pharaoh admits and recognizes. Yeah, God has been at work here, not you, Pharaoh. And he exalts Joseph to this position of being second in command over the entire kingdom. Only Pharaoh is greater than Joseph. Uh, there's kind of an Esther-type interaction here where after Joseph is exalted to second in command, he's paraded around in a chariot and people are bowing down to him as he goes by. It kind of reminded me of, uh, I think it's uh, Mordecai. He, the same thing kind of happens to him. Same thing happens to Joseph here. Now we have an application question. I ask you to think about the life of Joseph and our own lives. Instead of taking every opportunity to exalt or advance himself, Joseph humbly directs the glory to God when interpreting these dreams here. I want you to stop and just think about this for a second. You're Joseph. You've spent years in prison. All of a sudden, Pharaoh, the most powerful person in Egypt, hauls you out of prison and you're standing in front of him. And Pharaoh has already admitted that he's vulnerable, that he's weak. He's told you, I've asked my magicians, and they haven't been able to give me an answer. Pharaoh, I've heard, or excuse me, Joseph, I've heard that you can. Now, if I'm Joseph in this situation, I'm thinking to myself, I do not want to go back to prison. I do not want to go back to my cold, dark cell. Pharaoh has pretty much thrown himself in front of me and given me an opportunity here. I need to make myself indispensable. I need to... 
I'll come up with an interpretation that is somewhat plausible just to keep from going back to prison here. I'm going to negotiate terms with Pharaoh to try and make sure that I can at least stay in the free world. And yet jo Joseph is not like that. He immediately gives glory to God and says, Pharaoh, what happens next is going to be God at work. And so I asked you, what are some specific ways that you can practice this same behavior today? How can you be like Joseph? Yeah, Claire. Corinthians 10, 31, whether therefore you eat or drink or whatsoever you do, do all to the glory of God. Totally. So whatever your behavior is, do it to God's glory. Exactly. Whatever you do, do it to the glory of God. Cynthia, I saw you had your hand raised. But, um, but acknowledge that our talents, our skills are a gift from God, and apart from Him, we can do nothing. Acknowledge that our talents and skills are a gift from God, and apart from Him, we can do nothing. Any other thoughts on this? Yeah. I think sometimes when people thank you for doing something, it's, it's a great opportunity to deflect that to God and just say, you know, hey, thanks for noticing this or that, and I appreciate it, but really the Lord is giving us you know, guidance in doing this thing. So, but thank you, because we do appreciate that you're acknowledging a human accomplishment, and there's a place for that, too. I think sometimes, unfortunately, I am way too prone to take all the credit for myself. A good outcome happens in my life, and I think to myself, well, it's because I worked hard. It's because I made the right decisions. It's because I was disciplined, and I kind of manipulated my circumstances to make sure that this outcome happened. That is just a wrong way of thinking about things. It totally excludes God from the picture and denies that he is the one at work in our lives. And I say this to my shame. That is such a me-centered approach to think that somehow I'm responsible for the good things that happen in my life. You know, I've been praying for the little kids at our church that they would recognize, you know, that God has given them some incredible gifts and that they can use those for his kingdom. They can use those to make his name great. And God has been convicting me recently that what I've been praying for the little kids, I haven't been willing to do myself. And that I take opportunities and good things happen to me and people praise me. And that's where it ends. And I don't ever consider that God is at work behind the scenes. And I don't ever, not ever, but it is hard for me to admit and acknowledge God's at work here. He deserves all the glory. He deserves all the praise. I got to stop taking this credit for myself here and say, God, like Joseph did, he's the one who's at work, not me. In chapter 42, We're kind of dropped back into the land of Canaan. We fast forward through the seven years of plenty into the time of famine, and we kind of get a glimpse at what's going on back in Canaan with Joseph and, excuse me, Joseph's brothers and their father. They hear that there's grain available for sale in Egypt, so Jacob sends his ten oldest sons to go get food for the family, but he leaves behind Benjamin. He doesn't want any harm to happen to his youngest son, and it seems that his dad has just replaced Joseph as being his favorite. Now it's Benjamin. He's found a new favorite son. He doesn't want anything to happen to him. So the brothers go down to Egypt, and there they have their first encounter with Joseph. They don't recognize him. 
They fall down before him, as the dreams had said that they would, and, uh, you know, really pay homage to their brother without knowing it. And this isn't quite an in-and-out situation like the brothers were maybe hoping for here. Joseph actually decides to test his brothers. He accuses them of being spies, of coming to Egypt just to scout out the land and, you know, see how the situation is down there. And so he requires that they prove their honesty, that they are, in fact, 11 brothers, by leaving one brother behind, which ends up being Simeon, and next time they come, they got to bring Benjamin with them. And you kind of just think that this whole trip has been a disaster for the brothers. They're in like an incredibly difficult situation. They get the grain, yes, but leave Simeon behind. And they know that if Simeon ever has hope of getting out of prison, they've got to bring Benjamin with them. But they're already thinking ahead, like, no way dad is going to let us bring Benjamin with us. So they're like in an impossible situation here. What in the world are they going to do? And it's here that we have our first question. They're talking to themselves, even in Joseph's presence, and although it's been 20 years that have passed since they last saw Joseph, what do the brothers conclude is the reason that they are experiencing so much trouble and just trying to buy grain? Why do they say that this is happening? Diane? Because of what they did to Joseph when he was younger. Yeah, in a word... How would you describe what the brothers are experiencing in this story? Guilt. Yeah, totally. I, I was actually looking at uh, the junior church book for help on like, writing these questions here. They just really drew that out, that the brothers are feeling guilty 20 years later. Can you imagine this? I mean, inconveniences happen to us all the time, and how often do we connect the dots to some sin we committed? Not that often, unless we're guilty. Can you imagine these 20 years of Joseph's brothers trying to get their story straight every time Joseph's birthday came around and Jacob mentioned, oh man, I miss my son Joseph, and they have to relive that. Can you imagine when they go shepherd in that same part of the country when they were watching those sheep and they remember to ourselves, do you remember what we did to Joseph? This chapter even says that when they sold Joseph into slavery, he was distressed, he was begging, he was crying out not to do this. And they did anyway. I'm sure those cries are still ringing in their ears. It sounds terrible to be living with that guilt for two decades. And I just ask you to reflect on the following verses here. The Proverbs 28 says, Whoever conceals his transgression will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy. And then famously, 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We can look at the brothers here and realize it is not worth trying to hide sins. It must have been miserable for them. All of those years to know we're liars. We sold our brother into slavery. He didn't die they just confess their sins, the New Testament tells us there is forgiveness in Jesus Christ. Uh, There's certainly stuff for us to learn here. Uh, We're moving on to chapter 43, though, and it picks up with the brothers back in Canaan. Their food supply has run out. Jacob says, hey, you guys got to go get food a second time, and they know the terms. They know if they're going to return to Egypt, they got to bring Benjamin with them. And they say as much to their dad. They say, listen, we can't go back unless Benjamin comes with us. And Jacob is like really in a rock, in between a rock and a hard place here. His two options are either starve to death or let my favorite son go to Egypt and who knows what's going to happen to him. Reuben has a solution of his own. He tells his dad, uh, you can kill my two oldest sons if 
I don't come back with Benjamin, and that just seems kind of strange. But there is someone who speaks up and offers to take personal responsibility of Benjamin while they are in Egypt. Who is it? Judah. Yeah, so we're starting to observe maybe a little bit of the change that has taken place in his life. So they go to Egypt, and they buy the grain, and Benjamin is shown favoritism while they eat at Joseph's house. He receives five times the amount of food that the rest of the brothers do. And Joseph sends them back on their way, but not before planting the silver cup into his bag. Then he sends a servant after them and tracks him down. And the servant, you know, accuses them and says, you guys are suspects and why this cup is missing here. And they say, whoa, you can kill whoever has the cup and the rest of us will be your slaves. And the servant replies, well, I'm not going to kill you. I'll just take as my servant, the one who has the cup. And they start from oldest to youngest and start going through these bags. And the tension is building. Can you imagine as the bags are being opened from oldest to youngest and still no cup, and then it gets down to Benjamin, and sure enough, the cup's in his bag, they tear their clothes. This is, they're distraught at this revelation, and they return back to Joseph, and it is there that Judah says, listen, we'll all be your servants. Take us all. And Joseph says, no, 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 I'm not worried about it. I just want Benjamin. The cup was found in his bag. I'm taking him. The rest of you are free to walk. And I mentioned this at the beginning, but Pastor John kind of alerted me to what's happening here in this story. In a way, Joseph has recreated the events that took place 20 years prior when he was first sold into slavery. Think about it. Joseph was once the favorite son. His 10 brothers hated him. They willingly offloaded him to these traveling Ishmaelites. Now, 20 years later, there's another favorite son. And they brothers have an opportunity to also ditch him and have their freedom in returning back home. One commentator put it this way, previously, the brothers had sold Joseph for 20 pieces of silver. Now, the conditions are present for another betrayal at a far more compelling price, their liberty. The stakes are much higher now. Get rid of one brother, the favorite, Benjamin, all of you guys can go home. Joseph is about to see if his brothers are the same old men that he used to know. Are these the same guys who sold him? Or have they Change. Do you see how these uh, two instances kind of parallel each other? Once you see it, you can't unsee it. Joseph has put Benjamin in the exact same position that he was in, and he's going to see their true colors. Will they ditch him as they did Joseph 20 years ago? When that silver cup is discovered in Benjamin's bag and they're standing before Joseph, what does Judah propose or suggest in chapter 44, verse 33. Joanne. Yeah. Judah knows how much this will hurt his dad if he comes home without Benjamin. He says, my dad's going to die as soon as he sees that Benjamin isn't with us. Judah offers his life in exchange for Benjamin's. And I asked you to comment on the character development of Judah that you've seen since Monday's reading. 
What are some of the things you've observed? Maybe just tie this all together here. What is kind of the progression that you've seen in Judah's life? Anyone willing to just comment on that? Claire? He was a deceiver uh, to get rid of Joseph, but at this point he's willing to make up for it by sacrificing himself for Benjamin's sake. Before he was self-centered and hating, now he's doing the complete opposite. Yeah. Thoughts on that? Well, previously, Judah was the one who was kind of the ringleader and said, hey, let's sell Joseph into slavery. Now here he is saying, I will offer myself as a substitute for my brother, Benjamin. And I asked you, can you think of a descendant of Judah who would also offer his life for others? Jesus. Yeah, we'll close with the genealogy from Matthew 1 this morning. In Matthew 1, verses 1 and 2, it starts off by saying, the book, the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac. And maybe you just pause there and you remember the story of Abraham and Isaac on the mountain when Abraham is about to offer his only son and God intervenes and provides a ram. And maybe you're just reading the genealogy and you think of that story and you think that here in Matthew, we're being introduced to the lamb of God. And, and the genealogy keeps going. And you read in Isaac, the father of Jacob, and Jacob, the father of Judah and his brothers. And again, you pause and you think to yourself, Judah is prefiguring the one who is to come, who would give his life as a ransom for many. Judah and Jesus have something in common. Judah gave his life or offered to in exchange for someone else's. Jesus did that for all of us so that our sins might be forgiven. On the cross, he was the substitute. He took our place when we should have been receiving the wrath of God. Jesus stepped in. I think this connection between Judah and his later descendant, Jesus, is incredible. The story is awesome. That's only half of it, though. We'll pick up the rest next week. Before we end, I realize I made a change to the reading plan this last week. There is another one this week. Uh, we're going to read chapters 46 and 47 together in chapter 48 by itself. That will mess you up if you've been looking at the um, check sheet, however, that is reflected on the answers to the questions. I hope you are encouraged and challenged today to be like Joseph. Give glory to God. Flee from temptation. And that you're seeing maybe even some of the larger story of Genesis happening here as Judah offers his life for Benjamin. So let's pray. Lord, thank you for uh, just the imagery of the life of Joseph and just thinking about substitution and how once uh, we were in a position to face your justice and your wrath, and there was a substitute provided for us, the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ, who bore our sins on the tree that we might be forgiven. Thank you, Lord, for the story that we are seeing in Genesis that anticipates the work of your Son, and it's in his name we pray. Amen.